the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Shannon Mayer Banyaga of Hush Blackwell on revised Federal Energy Regulatory Commission enforcement guidelines. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Shannon Mayer Banyaga of Hush Blackwell in Washington, D.C., was formerly an attorney with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's Office of Enforcement. Shannon represents energy companies, natural gas and oil pipeline shippers, and state commissions before FERC in complaints, protests, and rulemaking proceedings. She evaluates and designs compliance programs to comply with FERC requirements and advises energy industry clients in enforcement investigations and audits before the agency. Shannon also has experience in environmental regulation, such as the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Toxic Substances Control Act, and CERCLA. Shannon, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Oh, you're certainly welcome. Revised civil penalties under FERC, which would indicate that this is, this is not the Commission's first attempt at such penalties, correct? That's correct. FERC started down this path after the Energy Policy Act of 2005 came out uh, around August of 2005. And since that time, FERC has issued several policy statements to more or less guide industry on how it will enforce uh, its new civil penalty authority, including policy statements on enforcement, compliance, and the penalty guidelines, which we have today. What happened on the first try? Well, the first policy statement on the penalty guidelines was met with heavy criticism, a good part because... It had in it some elevated penalties for violations of the electric reliability standards, which really set violations of that type above all others. Um, And really in an unprecedented move, FERC suspended that original policy statement and any application of that and decided to solicit comments on the penalty guidelines afterwards about 40 entities filed comments regarding the policy statement and penalty guidelines. And so how do these revised guidelines differ? They, they really reflect the requirements of EPAC 2005. And in my opinion, and I should probably stop there and offer that these are my opinions and not those of the attorneys of Hush Blackwell and certainly not the attorneys or any of the members of the uh, FERC, but they reflect the seriousness and remediation involved with violations. And, and to wit, the revised policy statement reiterated that it was appropriate to model the penalty guidelines on the sentencing guidelines. It also clarified that the penalty guidelines would not affect enforcement staff's exercise of discretion whether to close investigations or self-reports without sanctions. Now, keep in mind that these penalty guidelines only apply to Part 1B investigations and enforcement actions, so they don't apply to certain actions taken under the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Regarding electric reliability, though, the commission lowered the base violation level for reliability violations from 16 to 6, and it also increased the risk of harm enhancements for reliability violations. Now, that was a a huge step away from its initial policy statement where violations of reliability standards were started off at a base level much, much higher. Uh, So this puts it on par with violations of any other commission rule, tariff, Natural Gas Act, Natural Gas Policy Act, uh, those types of things. 
Regarding compliance, the Commission agreed to give partial compliance credit to organizations that have effective compliance programs. They revised the penalty guidelines so that credit for compliance is not totally stripped where an entity's senior management condoned or willfully ignored the behavior. The Commission also unbundled the mitigation credits for self-reports, cooperation, avoidance of trial-type hearings, and acceptance of responsibility. It recognized that those factors carry independent value and significance and should be credited accordingly. And what that means is that, you know, if you come in and you've committed a violation, but you self-reported and you cooperated and you decided to settle, but you said you, you didn't take responsibility, you know, affirmatively, you didn't deny or accept what the commission was saying prior to the revised penalty guidelines, you wouldn't get any points. Now you will get points for self-reporting, cooperation, settlement, and so forth. Regarding misrepresentations and lying to FERC staff, the commission agreed to include a Sienta requirement, which was very important. Uh, It is noteworthy that the penalty guidelines are only utilized after the commission has made a determination that a violation has been committed and that the violation warrants the imposition of a penalty by the commission. Um, And further, the commission's press release indicated that the revised policy statement and guidelines would apply to all future violations and any pending investigation where FERC's enforcement staff had not entered into settlement negotiations. So if you're a company that has just received word that FERC is initiating an enforcement action against you, um, it is likely that these revised penalty guidelines will be applied when you get to the settlement process. If you're already at that settlement process or in the show cause realm, they are likely not to be applied. So what did FERC do before the guidelines were established? You know, with respect to civil penalty assessment, we we used to joke that you basically threw a dart at a dartboard. Um, (laughs) and, and And that's to make light of the situation. But we would sit down after an investigation and look at the staff time and resources that were spent, what harm to the marketplace and consumers happened, what type of profit from the illegal actions took place. All of that resulted in a ballpark number, and essentially you went from there. Now, FERC and Office of Enforcement prefers settlement as opposed to litigation, which lots of people do. Um, and, and that number really would be the starter for settlement talks at that point. So who came up with these? Who created them? You know, I, I'm no longer on the inside at FERC, but I, I strongly presume that Office of Enforcement had a, a large role in, in crafting these guidelines, as well as the Office of General Counsel and the commissioners of FERC themselves. You know, we, we saw that unprecedented move where they basically did a cease and desist on the original policy statement on the guidelines. Mm-hmm. And, and that really reflected, you know, to the practitioners in the industry that FERC was serious about getting this right. And they wanted to do so and, and make sure that all elements of the agency were kind of on par with this. What is their purpose? What are they meant to achieve? And what are some of the most pressing issues the guidelines address? Well, just to, to go back, their purpose is, is to provide transparency and consistency. Like I said before, there it was really a black box. No one knew why a violation of something such as shipper must have title would result in a million-dollar civil penalty. You know, something like that is relatively benign. But as far as the pressing issues on the guidelines, you know, reliability probably took the, the biggest uh, change. FERC went back and adjusted the base-level violation for violations of reliability. It used to be 16, 
and now it's six, which puts that on par with other violations of Natural Gas Act, commission orders, whatnot. For reliability, also, the commission readjusted the ranges of you know, enhancements that were applicable to those violations so that base penalties range anywhere from $5,000 for low-risk violations to $17.5 million for high-risk extreme harm situations. On the compliance side, FERC pointed out that an effective compliance program could lower penalties by 95%, and, and that's crucial. Although the penalty guidelines provide kind of a, a laundry list of factors which quote, you know, comprise an effective <laughs> compliance program. The, the policy statement concluded that entities can earn partial credit for compliance programs which meet a few basic principal guidelines. Also, the policy statement clarified that entities won't lose cooperation credit for good faith legal or factual arguments. Now, this, w- this was really a huge change as far as I see it, because before... If you argued with enforcement staff on what what the law actually was, you would lose cooperation. They they would no longer deem you as being cooperative um, when you're you're really being an advocate for your client and advocating what the law can be interpreted as. So, do the revised guidelines give you a specific number or a range or, or something else? Well, yeah, I mean. They really don't give you a specific number. Rather, they do provide you a penalty range, and they provide a qualitative assessment of that particular conduct. Okay. So how do these revised guidelines work? Essentially, the the guidelines work in a three-step process, Steve. The first step is identifying the type of violation. And in the first category, you have violations of reliability standards on the electric side. The second category involves fraud, anti-competitive conduct, and violations of any other rule, tariff, or commission order. Now, the third category involves intentional or reckless misrepresentations and false statements to the commissioner staff. In each of these categories, there are certain factors which lend themselves to create a number at the end. Um, These factors include volume or duration of the violation, the financial loss caused by the violation, what type of load, when you're talking about electric, was involved in the violation. All of that to say it calculates to what's called a base violation number. Now, step two is what's called the culpability score. There's several factors that are assessed here as well, such as the size of the entity, what type of personnel committed the violations, i.e., was it someone low down on the food chain, was it senior management, and and what type of prior history the company has as well. All of that leads to a culpability score, which acts as a multiplier. Now, that multiplier has a minimum and maximum factor. So in the third step, you take the base violation and then you multiply it by the minimum and maximum multipliers, and you result in the penalty range, essentially. And and that's really a very abbreviated (laughs) nutshell of the the math involved. Without getting into the heavy math. Well, how successful have the guidelines been in achieving their purpose? You know, only time will tell. Uh, There have been no public orders regarding the application of these revised penalty guidelines. And really, we, as practitioners on the FERC side, can't look to past cases you know, for any kind of indication of how successful they'll be applied to FERC rules and regulations. Um, I'm curious, has there been much in the way, or any at all, litigation arising from this? No, there hasn't, Steve. In fact, we look to 
the Chapter 8 U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, but it doesn't provide a, a lot of help with respect to, you know, advising practitioners and advising industry participants on, on how these are going to be applied in the FERC realm. Now, one thing the press release accompanying the revised policy statement set out is that these were going to be applied prospectively. If a company has already engaged in settlement talks with respect to a Part 1B investigation, these would not likely apply. However, if the commission opens a new investigation on an entity, these would, these uh, guidelines and penalties would probably be used. So who should know about these revised guidelines? Really, any entity that falls under FERC's regulatory purview. Uh, in general, civil penalties apply to violations of the Federal Power Act, Natural Gas Act, and Natural Gas Policy Act. So any any entity that operates under those conditions should be should be aware of this, yeah. or at least their lawyers should. How do you use the revised guidelines in, in advising clients and, and dealing with FERC? You know, I, I see their use twofold. Uh, first is determining whether an entity should self-report. Um, when an entity determines it has committed a violation, it has the opportunity to report itself to the commission. But as you would assume, if bank robbers have the same opportunity, bank robbers don't always take that opportunity and self-report themselves to the police. No. Um, not to put you know, bank robbing and FERC violations in the same basket at all, but you know, it's a decision that the client makes whether to self-report, and it's based on a risk assessment. And really, these penalty guidelines give the company more to go on. And instead of just thinking well, I could be facing a million dollars a day per violation, it, it really narrows it down to a range. And that makes them have more of an educated guess and the ability to make that risk assessment. It always comes in handy with uh, settlement discussions as well because you're able to weigh the cost of litigation against settlement. And you know, given this range, you can see more or less what settlement will cost an entity versus pursuing litigation. And depending on the strength of their case, you choose one or the other. Right. Well, let's talk a little more about settlements, specifically the relationship between the guidelines and the settlement process at FERC. Uh, I mean, is FERC bound by the guidelines? Yeah, it's entirely discretionary. It's not mandatory for the commission to uh, impose penalties according to the penalty guidelines. Uh, the commission can choose to depart from them at any time with or without staff's recommendation. Um, FERC staff may recommend you know, downward or upward departures from the penalty guidelines given certain factors or conditions for the violation, um, but only the commission can authorize those departures. And FERC did specify in, in their policy statement that it would set out on the record the considerations that caused it to conclude a departure was appropriate. So that that offers additional guidance to practitioners as well as industry participants. Can FERC reject a settlement where the penalty is, is consistent with the guidelines? In theory, yes. But in my opinion, it's not likely. Uh, I believe FERC is, is relatively serious in its mission to provide transparency and consistency to the civil penalty process. Uh, it has issued these guidelines and policy statements in an effort to kind of step away from these star chamber proceedings. And uh, it, it's really entering a realm of 
firm but fair enforcement, which it has touted for years now. Um, but I, I have faith that it's really applying that rule. Somebody wanted to uh, find these guidelines. Where can they be found? www.ferc.gov, which is the commission's website, it has an enforcement tab on the website, which will lead you directly to uh, the press releases, uh, commission statements, uh, the chairman's statements, as well as all of the policy behind this. And as a, a final takeaway, a final thought, why why is this such an important issue, these revised civil penalty guidelines? You know, Steve, it it really reiterates the need, the absolute need for an effective compliance plan. It's really the key to reducing civil penalties. Again, the commission came out and said 95% reduction deals with compliance plan. And frankly, if if you don't have one in place, you're a sitting duck for massive civil penalties, depending on the violation, up to a million dollars per day per violation. That's, That's hefty. That's costly. It is extremely costly. And, you know, the cost of creating an effective compliance plan, implementing it, is is far more the benefit than a detriment, in my view. Shannon, we appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, talking about these revised guidelines and your thoughts on them. And we hope we can have you back again soon on a future LexisNexis legal podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Steve, and I would love to come back again. Shannon Mayer-Banyaga of Hush Blackwell in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at www.lexisnexis.com community. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.